Well, again, good morning all. Um, we are taking up this morning Genesis 9. Uh, so if you'd turn there, uh, we are taking up Genesis 9 and God willing the entirety of the chapter this morning. As I suppose has been our custom, um, we'll read the text really as um, we intend to make comments on various sections that belong to it. But let me just refresh ourselves a little. Um, since we last met, of course, we came to the end of the flood narrative. You remember, as we left the eighth chapter, you have Noah and his family and all of the animals in the ark depart. And you remember how the inspired historian presents that to us. He presents this to us very much, if you like, as a conclusion, a partial conclusion to what began in chapter 6. You remember how the reversal is, is very poignant. I'll just point out a few of those items. You remember that as you looked at this, you found the Lord looking back upon the earth, and there, once Noah had made sacrifice, the Lord is pleased. It's, it's a contrast, of course, from what you have in Genesis 6, where the Lord looks upon the earth, and far from pleasure, he finds, of course, objects for his wrath. Now, as we come to chapter 9, we need to keep that in mind. Uh, what, we had in chapters, what we had in chapter 8 was a partial conclusion to the flood narrative. Chapter 9 will bring that conclusion to its fullness. Uh, before us. And as we look at chapter 9, there are certain divisions that we can make. Uh, if you look at the first 17 verses of our text, you'll notice that really there's only one speaking. This is the Lord. So the majority of chapter 9 is simply the Lord speaking to Noah. And then verses 18 to 29 provide for us a narrative. So we return once again to history. And if we look back at those first 17 verses, there's a further division that we can make. First of all, Verses 1 to 7, you'll notice that the Lord gives Noah particular ordinances. So as they leave the ark, Noah encounters various commands, institutions that God would have him observe. And then verses 8 to 17, you have what is really the substance of that conclusion. Here you have the covenant that was promised in chapter 6, now taking full form in verses 8 to 17 of our text. And then in the, the narrative aspect, you have verses 18 to 24 showing us the crisis uh, that is encountered there by Noah and his family. And then you have verses 25 to 29, which really round out with uh, a number of conclusions for us. So as we move through the text, that's the basic outline that we'll take. We'll take the first section, the monologue, hear the Lord speaking. And before we begin, I, I should say this too. As we look at this text... As I've said to you time and again, the chapter divisions that we have in our English Bibles, um, uh, certainly uh, very helpful at times, um, but occasionally, um, as one historian has noted, uh, you wonder if the fellow who was doing it maybe bumped the carriage uh, as he was making marks on how to divide the text. Um, this is one of those cases where the division um, perhaps is not as helpful as other divisions could be. Um, really, when you look at chapters 8 and 9, they are one literary unit. Uh, they are to be held together. So we are jumping in really into the middle of what we began in the previous chapter. So beginning here at verse 1, the word of God reads, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. 
Now, if you'll notice, of course, this is something that you had already given to us in the previous chapter, but also something, of course, that reminds us of something far before that, right? We're thinking here of Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That's Genesis 1.28. And so what do you have in Genesis 9.1? Well, actually, you have really a, a marker, if you like, that this is a kind of new world. Just as as soon as man entered in creation, as soon as man really is put on the earth, he's given this command, now once Noah and his family come upon this new earth, renovated by water, they receive a very similar command. We'll come back to that, God willing, toward the end of our time. We'll pick up here verse 2. And the fear of you... And the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the field, beast of the earth rather, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. Now, there's a sense in which what is promised here is somehow unique to what Noah experienced and man experienced prior to the flood. Uh, this is a promise that is in some sense New And again, we'll, we'll consider more deeply what that means just in a few minutes' time. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. The flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Now, briefly, I, I do want to pause here. I know I'm pausing a good number of times, but I want you to notice what the text is saying. So, of course, before this moment, man was prohibited in every turn to eat meat, to eat flesh. Now the Lord says, you may consume flesh, but with one prohibition. Note the prohibition again is, you will not eat the blood. Now, why might that be significant? Well, as you're looking at this text, I want you to notice here, that the Lord is drawing a very strong distinction between the carnivorous beasts, those other animals that would consume flesh, and man. Man, even though he will consume flesh like other carnivorous animals will, there is a distinction between man and them still. That's a crucial point, something that the scriptures will then unfold for us in greater depth in the time to come but a distinction that we can't miss. Even if he may consume animals like other animals may, there is a real distinction between them and himself. Then he says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now, it's striking here. Obviously, when we look at this text, the subject of capital punishment comes directly to the fore, and rightly so. But I want you to notice the prohibition, well, not really the prohibition, the sanction that falls even upon the beasts. Again, you have it in the text. At the hand of every beast will I require it. Now, there's a strike, there are a number of striking parallels that we can draw between this text and what you have even in the light of nature. But, but note here what the Lord is saying. 
Man, even though he has been destroyed, even though he has been undone really by sin, man retains in a broken sense the imago die, the image of God. And because of that, whether it is man or whether it is beast, anyone who would inflict really capital punishment or anyone who, who would actually kill one who is imago die, if killed wrongfully, they are themselves to be put to death. You see this in Exodus 21. Even for an ox, if an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned. Now, if we hold this together with what I've just said before about the consumption of blood, what are we learning through this? We're learning here that still the distinction between man and beast is crucial. You see, man can consume the lesser creatures now after the flood. But even if a lesser creature would raise his hand against one who is in the image of God, that one must be killed. And of course, that will certainly be true for another man who kills his neighbor. And then he says, really, in a sense, forming an inclusion for all that's gone before, he says, and you, be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. That really rounds out for us these first seven verses, which provide for us really the institutions that God would have Noah and his family learn at this juncture, immediately after the ark. And so as you're looking at this text, it's important to keep that in mind. The Lord is setting before Noah and his family ordinances, institutions, if you like, that are now peculiar to this age of the world, this side of the flood. Now as we come to the next section of this monologue, verses 8 to 17, I already said to you that this is really the, really the conclusion then to the flood narrative. This is the covenant that was promised in Genesis 6. And so you have it beginning here in verse 8. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him. Just note that that's a very crucial addition. And to his sons with him. Saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, as you look at this text, and you compare this with what was promised in Genesis 6.18, and you remember just uh, briefly what we said when we looked at Genesis 6, the covenant that is in view here, the covenant that is promised, there are peculiar elements that belong only to Noah. Right? We understand that. Um, but when we're looking at the substance of this covenant, when we look at really what is its elemental components, what you find here is that this is the selfsame covenant of grace that was promised in Genesis 3.15. You see, as we said in Genesis 6, the crisis of the flood is covenantal. It is the question, how will man be redeemed if all are destroyed? And here the Lord promises, this will not happen again. But 
and we'll come back to this in a moment's time, but it's important for us to recognize that the covenant that is made here really has the covenant of grace in view. In fact, as one divine puts it, this is a type, if you like, of the covenant of grace. It is both a part of and also a sign indicating the larger covenant of grace that it was inaugurated in Genesis 3.15. Now, as a covenant, it possesses a sign. And so verses 12 to 17 give us that sign. And God said, this is the token, that is sign, of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Of course, this is referring to the rainbow. I want you to notice who is doing the remembering in this text. Who is the one who, when they look at the rainbow, are supposed to remember the promise of God? The answer is not man. The answer is the Lord himself. It's the Lord himself, when he sees the rainbow, who says, in a sense, he is mindful of his covenant. Uh, There's so much that's rich and so much that is fruitful to contemplate in that vein, but we'll, we'll reserve our comments more toward the end. It says here, and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. And so, as we come to the 17th verse, we come in many ways to really the completion of all that was promised to Noah in Genesis 6. He was promised to be preserved, he was promised to be delivered, and he and the animals, and that they would indeed replenish the earth. Here, the Lord has promised as much Uh, They've tasted the first fruits of that fulfillment. And now, of course, the covenant that God had promised in Genesis 6 is now formally made um, here in Genesis 9. But as we look at verses 18 to 29, we come into historical narrative. And, of course, there is a sense in which we can see connections with Genesis 6 and and really put it all together. Um, But I think it's helpful for us to remember that really the inspired historian is doing something else here. He has given to us the institutions. He's given to us the new covenant that has been made in the post-Diluvian world and the world after the flood. But now he's going to provide for us, really, the first historical narrative, a substantial historical narrative in the world after the flood. And so in verse 18 it begins, And the sons of Noah that went forth out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. This is proleptic, uh, to use the the fancy word. Um, Prolepsis here is just saying the narrator is looking ahead as much as he's looking behind. He's explaining for us how we're supposed to view the future, even before he gets to those events that tell us how they overspread the earth. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, 
and he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. We'll come back to what Ham's sin was in just a moment. But to hasten here to verse 25. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. That's a Hebrewism simply to say that he will be lowest of all, a servant of servants. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth. Now, if you remember a while back, we looked at the names of these three sons. What here Noah is saying is that God will cause Japheth to live up to his name. Japheth means to to be enlarged, to be expansive. He will live up to his name. And so that, you could say, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. I want you to note something here. Note the central son in this text. The central son is Shem. Every time Ham or Japheth or Canaan are mentioned, they bear some relation to Shem. That's crucial. And we'll come back to why that is in just a moment, because the text tells us that, as you look before, it is the Lord God of Shem. The Lord God calls himself particularly the Lord God of Shem. Now, as we close the chapter, it simply reads, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, beloved, as we take this text as a whole, having just made comments um, briefly, um, I think it's important for us to analyze uh, what we've seen in terms of all that's gone before. So, again, we're seeing here that Genesis 9 really shows a change in epoch. Here is a new age, here is a new world replete with new institutions and really a new covenant, um, even if it is substantially the same as the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. But I also want you to notice, as you look at especially the historical narrative that we just looked at, what does the inspired historian include of necessity right on the end, right on the end of this narrative about the really the, the conclusion of the flood crisis? He includes the defection of Noah. I don't know if that strikes you. It's a striking thing to include, isn't it? Immediately after Genesis 6, Genesis 6, which was about a church in defection, about the sons of God who had departed from the Lord, 
And as soon as we really exit the ark and leave that moment when all things seem to be neatly tied together, immediately the inspired historian falls to describe for us another son of God in another act of defection. It's a striking thing, isn't it? Striking, right? Because as you look at this, as you look at this text, you wonder, well, what then will happen? When the sons of God engaged in declination in Genesis 6, it brought the ruin of all the world, really. What will happen when Noah, the man who was outstanding in his generation, falls into drunkenness? What will happen then to all the world? It's a crisis, but it's a crisis I think that we better understand in relation also to Ham's sin. So let's take up Ham's sin just for a moment. So I'm, I'm referring here to what you have in verses 18 to 24. Now, exegetes, of course, have spent a lot of time um, through the running centuries trying to understand these verses. And thankfully, exegetes more recently have reverted back to a more ancient interpretation of the text. And the idea was that this text shows us that Ham had ridiculed his father. The sense is very simple, even in the Hebrew. The sense is Ham discovers his father's sin. And here's what Ham does. He goes to his brothers and he publishes it with ridicule, publishes it mockingly. Now, what's striking is the contrast, isn't it, between what Ham does and what Shem and Japheth do. They won't even look upon their father's nakedness. They find it a shameful thing. They find it like David would describe the death of Saul, tell it not in Gath. This is something that ought not be repeated. It's something that should really be covered, not publicized. Ham is exactly the opposite. Ham is a man who here sets before the world openly, in this case his brothers, the sinfulness of his otherwise godly father. Now, as you look at this text, in fact, let's, this is, I think, very helpful if we keep Genesis 6 in the back of our mind. What you see here is a man who is seeing, and the sense even in the Hebrew is he's spying on his father's disgrace, spying on his father's shame, publishing this crime to his brothers, not hiding it, not concealing it, and not dealing with it as he ought to have something to be considered shameful and to be covered. That raises the question, why then the curses? I mean, this is the vexing question for most exegetes. Why the curses that you find in verses 25 and following? After all, it was just ridicule, wasn't it? It was just Ham being very loose with his words, and, and, and being disrespectful to his father. Why this generational curse that will really ostracize a whole part of humanity after the world, after the flood? Well, if we think about this text in relation to Genesis 6, I think we have answers that come to us quite clearly. I want you to notice what you have in Genesis 6. You have a church that is engaged in defection. Now, she's engaged in defection because she has pursued the reprobate line. The church there takes upon herself 
the liberty to intermarry with those who are godless. But I want you to notice in this case, Noah stands very much like that defecting church. He gives himself over to wine. He commits, of course, the sin of drunkenness. But now come to the next comparison. So when you look at the church in Genesis 6, she is countenancing the sons of men. She is countenancing and delighting in the reprobate line. She does not find it shameful anymore. In fact, she's so willing, so willing to look at these things with delight that she becomes very much intermarried with the same. Now look at Ham's sin. When you see Ham here, the fact that he doesn't treat Noah's sin like Shem and Japheth, the fact that he would rather publish, publicize these things rather than cover them, don't you see here, to a countenancing, and in some sense, as Calvin would have it, even a delighting in the sins of this godly man? Here you have Ham who does not treat the defection of the church as he ought to. Here you have a man who, again to quote Calvin, will use this perhaps to justify his own defection. But then I want you to notice this. You remember that in Genesis 6, Noah, in that case, was a man who was mourning. A man who was faithful, even in the midst of all kinds of defection and declination. Here you have Japheth and Shem, Shem representing what their father had already emulated before the flood. These ones treat the defection in Noah as something to be covered, something that is shameful. Now if you hold all of that together, what do you have? Well, you have a couple of things. You have, first of all, the idea here that what Ham was doing was very much like what you find the church doing in Genesis 6. There, the church countenances sin. And even as one does, then the rest do, they intermarry with the reprobate line. Ham here, at least from the heart, does not treat Noah's sin as something to be considered shameful and to be avoided at all costs, something he would rather use uh, for mockery. Something, perhaps, against Calvin said, that may actually really be a form of justification for his own sin. Now, if we look at it in that light, then we understand Canaan's curse, don't we? Here the Lord is saying very pointedly, very pointedly through Noah, all of those like you, all of those descended from him with the same heart, um, all of you uh, will be subjugated. Um, and will be treated as those who are the lowest of all. Now, as we apply this text, you'll find here that, beloved, when you see defection in a godly person, when you see sin, it should be treated as something shameful. The text here levels the harshest imaginable curse to fall upon a man in his temporal well-being and even on his posterity because he took, to some extent, delight 
in the defection of a godly man. The scriptures are teaching us very pointedly. It is a solemn thing when we see the church in defection. And it's something that is not to be rejoiced in. It's something even that we should consider a great evil and something considered only solemnly. But there is comfort in the text as well, isn't there? What you find in this text is that notwithstanding Noah's defection, notwithstanding his fall, the world is not plunged into another flood. At this time, this was the church. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their families. That was the church of God on earth. And yet, what do you find? You find here that the Lord still has kept to his promise. The church will be preserved, even in spite of defection, even among her most illustrious members. And it shows us the wideness of God's love. It shows us the faithfulness of his, toward his covenant that he's already promised. But then finally, one application that we can't miss. This is something we learned from Genesis 6 and something that recurs, of course, in Genesis 9. When godly men, when the church decline, what befalls the world? You remember what I said to you in Genesis 6. The impetus for the flood was not the wickedness of Cain and his line. The impetus for the flood was when the church intermarried. That was the problem. And that's what brought the deluge. Now, when Noah sins and Ham sins, what happens to a whole part of humanity? They fall under the curse with which our chapter concludes. Beloved, defection in the church of God is not a small thing, and it has great ramifications. It touches not just the church, it touches all of society. And this is that which the text very pointedly holds out to us. And so, if we're to apply this text to right, it should only make us more earnest to pursue holiness. More earnest not to be those who are keeping their garments clean in a day of decline. May the Lord, through Jesus Christ, help us to do just that. Let's close by coming to the throne of grace together. Eternal and ever-blessed God, we come before you with thanksgiving for your word. We come thankful that though we are a sinful people, though the spirit of decline resides even within our own breasts, Father, we thank you that your mercies are still still to be found with your own. Thankful that, Lord, you do, not re, you do not destroy us, but that for Christ's sake, as we are a declining people, you do reprove us and you correct us and you chasten us as sons. And, Father, we pray that we would be those who are mindful of the great need to study holiness to be tutored in the spirit school, to be drawn more to Christ's likeness. Father, we pray that in your mercy, 
even as you use chastisements and other corrections to continue this work of sanctification. Father, we pray that you would give us softened hearts, hearts that would take defection in the church and in ourselves as solemn things, things to be mourned over and not countenanced lightly. Father, would you make us a people more like Shem and Japheth, a people who would rather cover with shame these things than publish them abroad. And Lord, we ask as well that in your love you would fix our gaze upon the one who has made promise through Jesus Christ that for his people all punitive wrath has been removed. That when he looks not only to the bow in the heavens, but when he looks to Christ, the lamb slain speaking from the throne, there he remembers his covenant with his people. Father, we pray that you would fix our gaze upon this Christ and this blessed covenant. And Father, we pray that all that we have, all that we would see ourselves to be and to possess, would be primarily pointing us back to this covenant. Father, we pray that you be gracious to us, pardon our many sins, and bless us in the hour to come. So we ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.